Tonight, we're joined by Alex Goryachev. Alex is the former managing director of Cisco's Global Co-Innovation Center, where he spearheaded programs and initiatives to accelerate innovation. Goryachev is a Silicon Valley veteran who is a sought-after speaker on innovation and is often referred to as the innovation therapist. For more information, please visit www.alexgoryachev.com. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, this is an unusual episode. You did it alone. I actually wasn't there. I had something else that I was dealing with. So we're recording this on Thursday, February the 2nd, and I always kind of like these. Uh, we've done two or three episodes now where you were solo and I listened to them later because it's it's always fun for me to hear it for the first time, just like everybody else. So what was your favorite part of the interview with, with Alex? You know, everybody talks about innovation and they, they all have this idea that of what innovation is, but it actually has uh, lots of different facets to it. It's it's innovation means different things to different people, and it definitely means different things in different industries. And so we we actually had a chance to dive into uh, kind of talk about the different aspects of innovation and and look at it through a few different lenses along the way. And I found he's an absolutely fascinating guy to uh, 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 to get on an interview. And he has ways of um, uh, kind of communicating this whole process that uh, you don't initially think about. So uh, fun time working with him. Did you learn anything about innovation you didn't know before? Um, well, maybe a few things. Um, yeah, there were... You have to understand that I spent a lot of a lot of my years thinking about innovation because we we actually worked at the Da Vinci Institute. We had oh, inventor boot camps. We worked with uh, um, uh, intellectual property professionals. We 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 came at this from a lot of different angles. We had a lot of startups at our colony workspace that um, were innovating in new and different ways. So, uh, but. Yeah, there's always some new rock to be overturned and new ways to think about it. So he's uh, he's he's actually quite the master of innovation. So are we going to learn how to cultivate innovation, how businesses can remain innovative in a changing world? Well, that's the idea. Um, so uh, his book, Fearless Innovation, is uh, is kind of the Bible on on how to craft a good innovation setup in your company. Well, fantastic. I'm excited for it. I haven't heard it yet. I hope you all are excited for it. So without further ado, here's episode 124 with Alex Goryachev. Alex, thanks for coming on to the Futurati podcast. I'd love to hear a uh, little bit about your your work on the topic of innovation, 
But let's start with um, some of your background at Cisco. Uh, can you fill us in a little bit on that? Yes. Uh, thank you, Thomas. I'm uh, always interested in the topic of the future, right? It's definitely one of the things that I can't predict. Um, so I'm happy to be here. And, um, you know, in the last uh, 20 or so years, I've spent uh, um, a considerable amount of time shaping innovation of today and tomorrow and trying to figure out what we've innovated in the past and how we learn from that. Um, and uh, a significant amount of time um, was spent by me in a company called Cisco. That's CISCO, the uh, world's largest networking company. And uh, when I look back at my career, it was certainly a right place and a right time to be and help shape the innovation engine for that company. Now, in, in your book, Fearless Innovation, it, you, you have lots of examples of uh, uh, companies and how they've managed to improve uh, innovation and different projects and products. Um, which one stands out in your mind? One, that, one that's a shining example of what you were able to accomplish. You know, um, I mean, I, obviously I'm biased towards Cisco because I've spent a lot of time there defining of uh, um, what the innovation um, is and how do we innovate inside the company. But in the interest of not being biased, just, uh, um, you know, stepping aside and I'm not sure the shiniest examples are the best. Um, they probably have the most to hide uh, by carefully... Yeah. Um, carefully looking at their shiniest uh, innovation image. Um, when I look at the, you know, when I look at the last couple of years, the businesses that innovated the most are not necessarily the large companies. They're the mid and small sized businesses across the United States and globally that managed to survive this pandemic that actually, you know, stood resilience despite, you know, um, so many challenges. And I think that when we look at the essence of innovation, that essence of innovation is understanding the purpose, understanding the, the customer, and knowing that there's no place for bureaucracy. So the shiniest examples of innovation are probably not the ones that are shiniest in terms of um, glossy magazine covers, but they're certainly the ones that keep this economy alive. So give us a good example. Give us a good example. Um, anything from a restaurant on the corner to a local pizza place, right? Um, it's, I mean, to me, innovation is our is the ability for the companies to innovate their processes to serve the customer better. So when I think about uh, curbside pickup, that's one of the inventions that uh, uh, that were invented during the pandemic, and that's or been bettered by the pandemic, and they were not necessarily been bettered by a uh, you know, big players, they were done better by um, uh, by small players. If we look at online fitness, of course, we've heard about the online fitness 10, 15 years ago, but that's something that, again, took off uh, during the pandemic. So when we see little, little players with very little capital, much like startups, and pressured against time, working with their dreams, and everyone on board, that's when the innovation happens. And I think if you look around in your neighborhood, no matter where you are, I'm sure you'll come up with many examples like that. 
so I'm sure that um, you, you have lots of examples where innovation doesn't just happen in the mind of entrepreneurs. Um, but um, as far as your background, have you been in, in involved in a startup where you've taken uh, some products and innovated them and brought them to the marketplace? Uh, most definitely. Um, you know, the one that comes to mind is, is very ironic. That's a startup called Napster. And it's one of those, uh, you know, uh, interesting history lessons. And for those of you that don't know, probably the reason that we have digital music on a device is because of Napster. That is the company that pioneered digital downloads, digital streaming services, and digital music. Um, and Napster never survived. Uh, when we think about the legacy that it's left, the legacy is something that we use every day in terms of how we consume music. But when we look at the company, the company actually went out of business um, as it was not able to compete with the dominant players that managed to shut that service down and learn from them. So the entrepreneurship lesson that I, uh, you know, that I want to offer from that is um, a lot of people say that big companies cannot innovate, and that is so true, but they don't have to at the same time. So when we think about Napster, large players learned from that experience and were able to go and create similar technology and offer it to the masses. Um, so that was definitely a very interesting adventure in my life. Okay. Um, yeah, some of the, the most dangerous players out there are the, uh, the big companies that are the fast followers that will, will pick up on a, a, a little startups innovations and able, they're able to out-execute and outdo the little guy and bring that product to life. Um, so with your, with your background, uh, why why did Cisco pick you for this position? Uh, that, uh, that's not something that I could answer. That's a good question for Cisco. <laughs> okay. Um, now, was your was your focus mainly on um, inside the corporation innovation inside the corporation? You know, my focus was primarily on um, both on how we work with the ecosystem and how we work with uh, with our employees. And when I think about the work that I've done, you know, inside and outside Cisco and with many different companies, um, I think innovation, unlike invention, comes to life when we work with others. Um, and I think the beauty is when we break silos inside a large organization by becoming a much more open and resilient like a startup, and when we engage with others, right, that creates value. And just um, kind of reflecting on the example, something that you've shared about big companies um, versus the little guy, what I've seen, um, I mean, I've definitely seen, seen some bad, bad actors in terms of uh, putting some startups out of business, but at the same time, um, especially companies like Cisco and others, it's really about um, co-innovating right? When we think about large company, large company is not necessarily uh, interested in stealing a startup idea. It doesn't have the time or the capabilities or desire or ethics to do that. 
but um, it's definitely interested in co-creating value, um, co-innovating together, acquiring the startup, making an investment. There are so many ways and so many vehicles. Uh, there's so many ways that this, the two things can be brought together in a in a kind of in a win-win solution. Um, when I when I go back to my Napster days, those win-win solutions did not exist at that time. Now they do. So, what what's your thinking about the um, the patent and trademark system that we have in the United States at the moment? Um, it's constantly being revised and updated, and it's intended to promote uh, innovation. Uh, is it working as well as it should? And what would you suggest to help improve it? Um, you know, I to be honest, I'm not an expert on um, on the patent system. Obviously, uh, there's a couple of things that I want to ref uh, reflect uh, on. You know, when I was a little kid, I really wanted to have a patent. I really wanted to have a patent. And I really did not care what this patent is for. Just somehow I thought that A, if I have a patent, it'll be very cool. And B, if I'll have a patent, I'll be very rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving forward, as I've learned in my innovation uh, journey, 97% of the patents in the world, and someone will correct me down to the right digit, 97% are not commercialized. Right. That means that some people, they're probably neither famous nor rich. Right. So, and obviously the reason I wanted to have a patent is because I had a big ego and I was poorly informed. Now, right. the one thing that I understand about innovation is innovation is not about egos, it's about collaboration. Um, so the lonely inventor with a lot of patents is a reality. And there are a lot of lonely inventors with a lot of patents. When we think about the innovators, they collaborate and they create value together and they protect their assets, intellectual property in this case, for patents or copyrights or trade secrets or other vehicles which exist. So all I'm trying to say is I'm not the guy who can advise on how to improve the patent system. However, I would advise the inventors that look at the pattern as the at the patent as a gateway to innovation and value is to think about what it is that they want to offer, why, and who are they going to create it together with. Because there are a lot of good ideas, and it, it might sound arrogant, but ideas are dime a dozen. Right. It's the themes that make the innovation happen. Right. And um, as you know, right, as we in, in your business and in, when you have a passion for the future, you look into the future, you might see different things where where people can go. But, you know, it will take not only visionaries, but teams of visionaries. Right. So. So to me. As we want to become more innovative. To me, it's not about changing our our patent system. It's about changing our mindset. 
it's how can we be more collaborative? How can we be, um, how can we act with more common interest versus a selfish, ego-centric behavior that rarely gets us anything? So about five years ago, I was doing some work for uh, the John Deere Corporation. And uh, 105 years ago is when John Deere entered the tractor industry. Uh, that's when they bought this, um, uh, this uh, item called the Waterloo Boy. That was their very first tractor. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, if you look up the Waterloo Boy, it's not a very impressive tractor. And uh, it has taken uh, 10,000, 100,000 innovations by John Deere along the way to get to where they are today. Uh -huh. um, so that's, uh, it came from Waterloo, Iowa. That's why it's called the Waterloo Boy. So um, if, um, if you could, could you talk about how the concept of innovation has changed over the past 100 years and, um, and why there's so much more emphasis on it today than there was back then? Well, you know, to be, I think in a nutshell, the concept didn't change, right? It's an iterative process of improving things for the common good or for commercial gain, but basically for a better outcome for ourselves or the collective. Um, what I think has changed is, you know, because of the last, because of the internet and the fourth industrial revolution and the, the things that you and I witnessed in the last 20 years, the innovation became more democratized, which means that competing requires and entering the market requires less capital, less assets, and less commitment. And um, so almost everybody anywhere has a route to market and the ability to go and test their ideas. And I think the radical shift that we are seeing is there's more noise. There's more volume of innovation yeah. and because there's much lower barrier to entry. That doesn't mean that we get a lot of, you know, crappy ideas or a lot of brilliant ideas, but there are more actors that are innovating and they find each other and they co-innovate together. And that's why we are seeing people around the world solving problems together. And I think that's what's really that collaboration is what's really different about innovation. Everything else is still the same. I think without within this construct, you're probably familiar with the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Right. Um, so we move up the stack. We innovate for survival, and then we innovate for aspiration and common good. So you know, the more problems that we solve as a society or as a city or as, or as a collective or organization, um, the more we move towards our aspirations. So I think now that we're seeing innovation across the world, we're seeing different organizations, different geographies, a different level of that stack. And I feel that's very beautiful because we can not only witness that, but help each other. So as uh, one of the things that uh, insights that we've gained 
with the internet is we've we've gained a, a growing awareness of everything happening around the world and um and it's, it's kind of amazing because we're understanding what's happening in in little countries literally all over the world so how would you describe the difference in our thinking about innovation in the United States from uh, countries like India and China? You know, I think um, if, if I could actually reflect on the first part of your question, um, I was thinking about this a lot, right? Because the stuff that we learn from the internet is comes from a source. Right. And the sources are, you know, Google or other search engines. The, the source is data that we believe to be true. Right. And, um, which may or may not be true. I think that recently there was a study that like 60% of the internet is duplicate. And I wonder duplicate of what, right? Is that duplicate source accurate or not? Um, I mean, obviously, there are reliable um, sources like Wikipedia, and I'm not being sarcastic. I actually do trust the Wikipedia, and I appreciate that it exists. But as we move forward, um, and as we start to use more of uh, artificial intelligence, like we go to ChatGPT and we ask a question, and it gives us the answer. So is the answer biased or not? Is it honest or not? I mean, what's honest? Is it factually accurate or not. I think these are all the questions that we got to start asking ourselves as we learn stuff of the internet. Not everything that's... Uh, um, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh -huh. I, I'm pretty sure if we uh, held a fact checker up to everything that's being taught in school today, that a lot of things would fail. Um, because we, we're, we're not doing that presently. So uh, a lot of that are people's opinions, their, their ideas. And so I think we would fail miserably if we, if we did that. Um, so I, I agree with you that somehow we need to uh, get to an era where we can uh, act, understand uh, kind of at least levels of accuracy. Well, it may not be 100%. But it's okay to have opinions as well. So I think that's that's a, a valid uh, part of the world that we're living in. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. It's the, it's the opinion of the artificial intelligence that scares me. I have a hard time reconciling the word opinion and artificial intelligence in one sentence. You're, <laughs> you're the future, you do. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, yeah, so is there a difference in innovation in other countries? I, yeah, I think, you know, I think innovation everywhere is in, I was uh, lucky to travel around the world, actually just coming back uh, literally less than a week ago from a trip uh, from Iceland and um, just spending two weeks there and seeing how incredibly innovative the country is with the thermal power, with the way that they run the water and the heating system, the way they grow their own vegetables and everything else. It's, um, it's pretty impressive. And I really feel that that, goes uh, that really goes to the essence of the question. Yes, there are differences because all of us are solving different problems. Right. So people are innovative in Iceland. They're solving a particular 
you know, geo geographic and, you know, weather climate related problem that hopefully we will never face in the state of California where I am in, we have a different problem. And so, so everywhere people are innovating differently because they have a different reality of what, of the world, of the physical world that they're operating in and that informs their thinking. That's why, again, going back to, you know, any organizations, that's why I say inclusion and diversity and innovation that goes hand in hand. And that is about people with different backgrounds and different opinions as they look to see the problems differently and solve the problems differently. And when we start collaborating across those different dimensions globally, magic happens. So since you brought up um, the AI programs that are very popular, the chat, chat GPT right now, um, as I, I, I think about that and you know, where is that going to go? Well, it's printed documents right now, moving to art programs, moving to AI generated music. And, and I'm thinking, you know, it can't be that long when I can just ask it to um, create a 10 minute movie about this topic, using these people, um, using these props and, and coming to this conclusion. And it would actually go through and generate the entire uh, video um, of that. And I think maybe maybe less than a year away, maybe two years away. I don't think it's much more than that. Um, this this takes uh, kind of our kind of our creative spirit to a different level, uh, as it gives us tools that we've never anticipated being able to to wield in the past. Um, how, how does that change the, the thinking about innovation in your mind? Well, it's a form of innovation. I mean, to be honest, what you've described is, I, I agree with you, it's, it's a year or two away, and I'm sure there will be, a, it's, a, it's going to be a beautiful art form, and I can't wait to watch that movie. Hopefully, it's not going to be a new segment. Um, but, uh, but more of a movie. And um, I believe there is a space and, uh, and, time, uh, and time for this, but it's not gonna replace the entire industry, right? I think a lot of people are, are worried that, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is gonna replace uh, jobs or take away jobs or take away creativity. I'm, honestly, I don't think that's gonna happen. I think it will, and you use that word, I think, inspire that creativity or create another dimension where we will just see beauty um, or different things from a different angle. So it will give us more data points that we can reflect on and innovate on. Uh, Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. I think it takes yeah. up this learning curve to a, a whole nother plateau. And while we, we don't, 
we don't automate jobs out of existence. We automate tasks out of existence. So a lot of the existing jobs can be done with fewer people, but it will also be a massive, huge job generator as it uh, creates entire new industries. Um, so I think the, I don't think we have a net job loss. I think we have a net job gain uh, moving forward. That's what it looks like to me anyway. Um, I, uh, I agree with you. And I think the promise of uh, technology, at least in our personal lives, whenever that's kitchen appliances or smart home or digital devices is all about freeing our time. Uh, right. Based on what I know, in my personal experience, it just adds time. Right, it, it takes more time to go and, and deal with all those appliances and devices. Um, so it's not freeing up time. And right. I agree, it's not <laughs> gonna free up any, you know, any jobs, it's gonna create more. Right. Um, so I've, I've played around with this idea of, um, it's a different type of learning. Uh, if you can imagine, uh, putting on a spandex suit on your body and along the spandex suit you put muscle stimulators at uh, several points around the suit and then you you watch a um, an Olympic gymnast doing a floor routine of a lot of flips and twists in, in the air and you program that into your suit and then that would give you the ability to stimulate the right muscles at the right time. And naturally, you wouldn't be as good as the Olympic gymnast, not, not initially anyway, but it would give you a, a much quicker learning curve as you tackle this, um, this, new, uh, this new ability that you suddenly have. Um, and I, I, th I think about this in a similar vein to the AI programs, um, because it suddenly it gives us the ability to do things with our body that we couldn't do in the past, not just things we could do with our mind. And I think that's uh, exciting and scary all at the same time. Yeah, and you know, I, I watched my grandmother cook uh, many, many times, and I, I can't cook as good as she does, right? Um, but I mean, there's definitely must. There's definitely ways that we can get more information um, and become smarter from from that information. But it's never going to happen unless we're going to embody it. So I think that what you said about the body and being in the body and actually having having a body experience versus mental experiences, which, as you know, are worlds apart. Right. Um, um, I think that's where where there's a lot of magic that uh, that hopefully will move towards is being being more present in our bodies and being more present in in reality versus distracted in technology or by technology. Um, I actually I, I was thinking about the name of um, you know this this whole topic of futurism and one of the things that I've uh, you know, recently um, understood just um, from an individual perspective is that, uh, you know, I'm so worried about the future. I'm so focused on the future. So if you focused on the outcomes and it's the present that informs the future, right? It's, it's only, it's the now that's informs the future and now can only be felt in the body. 
it can only it's a sensation it's a feeling um it cannot be a mental process so i think right. you're onto something without embodiment hello this is trent fowler co-host of the future audio podcast one of the most common pieces of marketing advice i've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want one difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Future Audio Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuraudiopodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So, if we if we move forward in your thinking, um, let's take the year two thousand forty or two thousand fifty. How does how does innovation change? Um, what 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 innovation attributes uh, are different um, moving forward? I mean, does it speed up? Does it get more inclusive? Does it uh, uh, start at an earlier age in school? Does it, um, um, I don't know, are we spoon-fed innovation um, uh, from birth? Uh, is this uh, all of the above? Or <laughs> uh... That's a great question. You know, I, I uh, there's definitely, I think we're not going to unlearn innovation. Right, um, and you you were you were saying about something about the you know the childhood and the kids and school, and that deeply resonated with me as a father of two. I see that the kids are natural born innovators. I actually wrote an article about that a couple of um, months ago. That the we are born innovators, and innovation is in our body, it's in our DNA, it's in our mindset, which is our ability to be open be curious um, and uh, playful. So I hope that that is, that is something that not only we will preserve as a society going forward, but that's actually something that we are going to double down on, which is being more playful uh, being more, because that's where the life force energy is. It's, it's, it's not on a, you know, heavy mental process. It's, it's in play. When we go and we look at, uh, uh, kids in a, you know, in a, on a kindergarten or somewhere on the street, and we look at the people in the boardroom, who is more alive? People in the elementary school or the Davos World Economic Forum? Ah. And who would I trust more future in? <laughs> Not the people at the World Economic Forum. And by the way, I love them dearly, but I'm comparing them with kids that are, and the kids have that curiosity, play, and they're not disillusioned and cynical. So in the year 2050, I really hope that we would be more like kids by being open and happy and present in the moment. And hopefully artificial intelligence is going to help us deal with the problems uh, that are needs to be dealt with, such as inequality, access to resources, and all the different things uh, that somehow are not being solved at the World Economic Forum so far. 
Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So there are there are certain, um, I don't know how to describe this, there are certain uh, government level um, innovations, changes that have happened that um, dramatically change how the world operates. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the first one is when they allowed people to own land, um, that suddenly that opened the door for all kinds of things to start happening. Um, and I, I've been thinking about what are some other massive, huge uh, system-wide innovations kind of mega innovations that could happen around the world that dramatically change mankind. Um, so I personally, I think that if we got rid of the uh, the income tax system, which is a, a tax code that just consumes entirely too much energy um, uh, for what it what what it gains, um, I think that that could open the door for massive, uh, changes in the world because we could we could dedicate so much more time and energy to businesses and processes and human development that would now get consumed by this uh, uh, this this massive black hole in our society. <laughs> uh, and there there's there's other things as well. But um, have have you have you thought about it from that kind of systems thinking level uh, approach to you know what is it that we can just move this uh, the system a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, and suddenly we would have uh, a whole new dynamic that uh, uh, inspires people in new and different ways. You know, I was definitely uh, just uh, through the virtue of my life story, I was thinking a lot about uh, uh, the relationship between the government policy and the and innovation. It's, um, you know, I was born in, uh, in a country that no longer exists. Uh, and I hope never will, okay. which is Soviet Union. Okay. And um, certainly, I feel that the more government is involved in the economy and regulation and everyday lives of people, the less innovation there is. So there is definitely a um, there is definitely a correlation there. I mean, I'm. I think it's obvious for for everyone is, um, and I think that you know, witnessing this, the biggest innovation in the Soviet Union was how do people escape that um, over government overreach, right? right. So, um, so where is that perfect balance, right? Uh, we we still need taxes and we still need revenue to go and take care of our roads and the public safety system and. Right. Uh, funding our police force properly and all the other arts initiatives that we need to fund as well. Right. Um, I don't have the answers to that. Um, yeah, I know Peter Peter Thiel uh, likes to ask the question of uh-huh. um, <clears throat> world, would the world be better off with relatively more countries in the world or relatively fewer countries? 
And uh, I tend to lean towards uh, more countries in the world because that opens the door for more innovation. Uh, we can experiment with things and try new things. Um, existing countries get um, get stagnant. They they they, um, they they calcify and they can't can't make changes very quickly. And so I always thought that that was such an interesting way of thinking about the world. Well, you know, I'm with you. Uh, is when I uh, it's interesting that you brought up this uh, this topic, right? When I think about, um, I was the one who mentioned the USSR and it you know, dissolved in 15, um, 15 countries. Was this a tragic and, and uh, um, painful process? Definitely. Is this, are we still seeing the seismic effects of this process today? Most certainly. Yeah. And at the same time, I know it was the right thing to do. Um, so I can only reflect on it from, you know, my personal history and from my personal history, the outcome of that dissolution was far uh, was far better, and it's when you think about the large organizations is uh, when you take a monopoly, just shifting topics from geopolitics into more of a you know business setting. When you take a monopoly and you break it into smaller companies that are starting to compete with each other, there are far better outcomes for everybody involved, right? Um, so. I think, at least in the business world, and certainly in the in any societal world, the more players that we have that fairly and ethically play with each other, the better outcomes we have for everybody. All right. Well, very good. Um, this is seems like a, a perfect note to to end this discussion on. Um, so, people who want to know more about uh, your book, Fearless Innovation, and how to get in touch with you. How do they do that? The uh, LinkedIn is the best one. So just looking me up on LinkedIn is probably the best, uh, uh, the best way to do that. All right. All right. Well, very good. Well, we will, uh, we, we thank you for uh, taking your time to be on the Futurati podcast here. And uh, I had fun. I mean, we talk about crazy topics on here all the time. So I hope we challenged your thinking a little bit uh, as we're going here. <laughs> well, you definitely you definitely planted some thoughts. Um, again, the artificial intelligence opinion, but something that I'm going to think about the geopolitics and innovation, the government, po uh, the government policy and innovation. These are the topics that um, they're not only fun and, and intellectually stimulating, but they're very necessary and very challenging. And that's whenever we want that or not, that's something we would have to deal with in the very near future. Yeah. Well, thank you for very, very much for coming on the show here. And I wish you the very best uh, moving forward. Thank you, I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll run across each other again sometime here soon. In the future. In the future. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, let me turn off the recording here. Uh, oh. Um, all right, well, I wanna thank you for coming on here. Um, I, uh, I should have asked you the question that we, we like to stump our guests with. Um, the, we, we, 
the question I love to use is uh, the guy that invented the clock, how did he know what time it was? <laughs> he was the first one who actually arbitrarily said it, probably. <laughs> uh, actually, the, the right answer is uh, they had sundials and they had some sense, but uh, they're putting it all together that way. But uh, yeah, it's a tricky question. <laughs> it, it is an interesting question. You know, the, 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 uh, I'm actually still mentally stuck on the correlation between the number of countries and innovation. Uh, that is an interesting one, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because there are larger sums of countries. Like you take a lot of European countries and then they roll up to uh, to European Union. And I was just spent like a week with uh, a roommate who was, uh, I was on a personal growth retreat in Iceland who was the patent attorney for European Union. And yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've listened to a lot of opinions about like whenever or not countries should be grouped in uh, in large uh, in other large settings. <laughs> well, well, listen, I uh, appreciate you coming on here. Let's stay in touch, and uh, we'll let you know when this one goes live. Uh, definitely. The only comment that I want to um, make is since I'm no longer working for Cisco. I okay. can't speak for Cisco, uh, so okay. so that's why it's I really brushed off the Cisco. Like I danced around all of the Cisco questions, but okay. in my lovely separation agreement, they really spelled it out that unless it's like a public, I can talk about it as part of my bio, but not as part of their. Okay. Um, and they track that. I mean, not okay. for Alex. They track this for everybody. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, very good. We won't uh, make too big a deal out of that then. All right. Well, you take care and um, we'll be in touch later. I, can I ask you a futuristic question? Sure. Quick. Sure. What's the tie between science fiction and futurism and why the hell it almost always comes, comes to be true? Uh, say that again. What? When we think about science fiction. Yeah. Whenever that's 1984, and I'm yeah. taking a politically loaded one, or something else where it just talks about the technology, somehow the science fiction manifests itself in the reality. Yeah. Or am I biased? Like a, well, not all science fiction true. does. Yeah. Um, I, I have a bone to pick with science fiction writers because almost all science fiction ends up in the... Uh, it ends up in the horror category, um, and I, I don't think I don't think the future is is uh, bad or terrible. Um, I don't think there's a utopia out there either. So it's something in between. Um, but uh, but yeah, when we when we create visions of the future, that changes our outlook on the world. Um, and so it, it always influences our thinking and it does it in a big way. It does it in a way that um, uh, could influence an entire new generation of young people uh, to think a certain way. So, um, yeah, we, we just came out with a new course called Future Like a Boss. 
in Future Like a Boss is um, um, a course I created to uh, give all the technique, you, uh, teach people the techniques I use how to think like a futurist. Okay. Um, and so we have 14 different lessons in this course. And uh, so we're just getting it launched now, but it's- uh, What's the platform for that? So I'll mark it. Uh, futurelikeaboss.com. So you'll deliver for that platform or it's going to be on like LinkedIn learning or- uh... Um, uh, It's it's on Kajabi. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and so we have videos and then we also have a textbook that goes along with it. It's a 300 page textbook that I wrote. Um, so quite, uh, quite comprehensive, I think. And we've gotten really good reviews on it so far, uh, although the numbers are small. So we're trying to get the word out on that. But uh, yeah, quite a, quite a fun project to go through. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, and the tax code is a whole thing. Um, is an interesting topic as well, especially yeah. re removing the income tax, shifting it to sales taxes. You know, there is a dialogue right, right. now. About that. I, I think yeah. if you like that idea. Yeah, and I don't know if the sales tax is the right answer, but I just know that income tax consumes entirely too much energy. Oh, uh, hell yes. I mean, if there's a simpler process, it will, yes, yeah. it will save a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Although it takes the power away from Washington, so that's what. <laughs> uh, that's so many of the elected officials. That's their base of power is being able to grant exemptions on taxes and redistribute it from point A to point B. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. If sales tax model would directly correlate it with a particular segment industry geography and everything else it's a, it's a it's a it's a game shift there it's a, right it's, a, it's an interesting topic yeah very definitely all right i you know if you ever in if, if you ever get out to california i know it's on the other side of the world but yeah. i bet you san diego is only one flight <laughs> so, so you're in san diego okay i'm in san diego i'm in carlsbad which is a few miles uh, north Ah, okay. I, I know that area well. Yeah. I, I hope we'll, we'll get connected. I, I hope so too. All right. You take care now. Thank Thanks. you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.